Hello, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America, which is the founder and owner of the open access journal Lupus Science and Medicine that is published by BMJ. In this podcast, we will be discussing the article Safety Profile of Anifrolimab in Patients with Active SLE, an Integrated Analysis of Phase 2 and Phase 3 Trials. The article is available for free online at lupus.bmj.com. Our guests include Professor Eric Morand, Head of the School of Clinical Sciences and Director of Rheumatology at Monash Health and founder of the Monash Lupus Clinic in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Raj Tamala, Executive Medical Director at AstraZeneca. Professor Moran, let's begin by providing an overview of anifrolimab in lupus. Well, the interferon pathway has been known to be important in the pathogenesis of lupus for a long time, based on biomarker studies, animal studies, and on some phase two studies for a couple of molecules, which justified the commencement of two global phase three trials, TULIP-1 and TULIP-2, to verify once and for all the efficacy and safety of anifrolimab, which is a receptor antibody, which means it blocks the signaling through the type one interferon receptor. Therefore, every member of the type one interferon family is blocked. This is not an approach that's ever been used before in a phase three trial. So it was a very novel experiment. And we already know that lupus trials are hard to do because patients are highly heterogeneous. Endpoints are still evolving and not quite finalized really in this space, but such confidence there was in the target that this trial needed to be done. Dr. Tamala, please give us a brief summary of the clinical trials conducted for this monoclonal antibody that blocks the activity of type 1 interferons. There are three studies involved. There's a phase two study named MUSE, and there's the two phase three studies named TULIP-1 and TULIP-2, as you mentioned. All three studies were double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled studies. They are global studies. They were all conducted in similar regions, so North America, Latin America, South America, Europe, and Asia. TULIP-1 and TULIP-2, the common dose is 300 milligrams. That was a dose that was identified from MUSE. TULIP-1 also had an additional dose of 150 milligrams. The drug is given every four weeks from weeks one to weeks 48 with the final primary assessment at week 52. There were 362 patients in TULIP-2 and 457 in TULIP-1. The purpose of the phase two trial is to confirm the efficacy and obviously also to evaluate the safety and tolerability of the drug. Here, we confirm the effect of anaphylamab on improvement on overall disease activity, but we also looked at other endpoints such as sustained steroid reduction, improvement in organs such as skin and joints, as well as effects on flare, but also we tried to understand the effects in terms of patient-reported assessments. And this is important because one of the aspects of the study design that was very interesting was the mandatory attempt to reduce corticosteroid during the trial with a plateau period uh, leading up to the final endpoint, obviously. And this means that because steroids have so many adverse effects, including higher risk of infection, that you have an interesting situation where you have a novel targeted therapy targeting the immune system, adifrolimab, with potential for uh, adverse effects. And then you have a steroid, which also has adverse effects on the immune system, which you are reducing in the context of having that novel therapy. So it creates a sort of uh, two lines that are diagonally opposed to each other in terms of what the patient is exposed to, which is again, a novel aspect of this study. The reason for that design is obvious because steroid taper is a crucial part of the goals of treatment of lupus, but it creates this interesting situation in terms of analyzing both efficacy and safety. 
I think that's what makes the TULIP studies in particular very unique and interesting is that mandatory attempt to taper. All patients, um, those that were on greater than 10 milligrams, 10 milligrams or greater of prednisone or equivalent had to make an attempt to taper starting weeks eight to weeks 40, and then were able to sustain that taper till the end of the study. Okay, so now let's dive a little deeper into the structure and data from these trials of anafrolimab. The two trials had different primary outcome measures. Both trials are published, so this is known. TULIP-1 didn't hit its primary outcome measure, the SRI-4, but did hit a multiple secondary outcome measures, including BICLA, which was the primary outcome measure in TULIP-2 and was also captured in MUSE. Across the three studies, the BICLA endpoint was demonstrated a significant gap between active treatment and placebo and multiple other measures, including steroid taper, such as we've measured, plus rash endpoints, arthritis endpoints in two of the studies and so on, add up to a totality of evidence favoring efficacy of this compound. The focus of your paper is on the safety profile of anafrolimab. So describe for us the procedures that you had in place for this trial to monitor the safety of anafrolimab. I mean, obviously, as this is a novel pathway, we wanted to effectively characterize the safety and tolerability of anaphylamab. Towards that end, we used a, a systematic process to do this, none of which are completely unique, but when you put them all together, they are, for a biologic, I think, fairly comprehensive. So as an example, like most biological programs, we did have a DSMB that periodically independently reviewed the safety data. But we also had a cardiovascular adjudication committee because the SLE population has a higher rate of cardiovascular events, and we wanted to better understand this effect, we had a cardiovascular adjudication committee that was very conservative in the sense that all cardiac and vascular serious adverse events were adjudicated for major cardiovascular events. Likewise, because the patients have a higher rate of depression and suicidality, we included a patient assessment of depression scale. We also assessed for suicidality at every visit using the Columbia Suicidality Severity Rating Scale. And then we systematically collected adverse events and the adverse events profile. So what were the major adverse events that participants experienced in this trial, and to what degree? So in common with most trials in patients who are already on immunosuppression, who then have an additional immune modulating drug added to that background therapy, it's worth pointing out that in this trial, all patients were on at least one background therapy, and the vast majority of patients were on more than one background therapy. So they were on combinations of anti-malarials, glucocorticoids, and immunosuppression, to which was added in the active treatment arms, anaphrolimab. So given that background therapy, it's unsurprising that there was a high rate of respiratory and viral infection. Now, what I want to go through in detail now is uh, the overall safety data. So in the two treatment arms, about 80% of patients had any adverse event. As Raj has mentioned, capturing adverse events is very thorough in trials such as these. So that captures everything from very mild to very severe. Serious adverse events is a special classification that's uh, used to assess adverse events with a potential risk of harm to the patient, such as requiring hospitalization, for example. And here there were serious adverse events in about 12% of anaphrolimab treated patients. That's across the three trials together. And about 17% of placebo treated patients. Now, this took us slightly by surprise, to be honest, to have a higher rate of serious adverse events in the placebo-treated patients. But serious adverse events include flares of lupus and hospitalization due to lupus. And these events were more common in the placebo-treated patients. But back to the serious adverse events overall, they did include infections. About 5% of patients had non-opportunistic serious infections, a serious infection requiring, for example, interferonous antibiotics. There was no difference in the prevalence of those between the two treatment arms. Opportunistic infections were extremely low, only one in each treatment arm, and they were balanced. There were no episodes of anaphylaxis. 
There were three episodes of malignancy in each treatment arm with no difference. There were no episodes of active TB. There were a handful of episodes of uh, latent TB, meaning a seroconversion, and a handful of episodes of influenza that were uh, balanced between the treatment arms. So the biggest adverse event that was unbalanced between the treatment arm was herpes zoster reactivation or shingles. This was predicted on the basis of the mechanism of action because interferon is part of the immune system's defense against viral infections. We know that other pathways touching less comprehensively on the interferon pathway, such as JAK inhibitors, are associated with increased incidence of herpes zoster. And this was designed as a special adverse event of interest and captured very carefully across the study. Across the three trials, 6.1% of anaphromomotreated patients had a herpes zoster reactivation compared to 1.3% of patients on placebo. And this was a clear difference with an effect size of 5.4%, 95 confidence intervals that didn't cross one. So while this was predicted, it was a significant difference and it was a significant difference of adverse events overrepresented in the anaphromomotreated treatment arm. Now, it's important to understand that these herpes zoster events were all one-off. There were no recurrent events. They mostly happened in the early few months of the study. Understanding the profile of herpes zoster events is very important. All but one case were non-systemic. The vast majority were classified as using a pre-specified classification as mild to moderate, all resolved with treatment, and only a couple of patients had to discontinue anaphrolamab. In the phase three trials, just about everybody continued on anaphrolamab treatment and were successfully treated for their zoster with standard antiviral therapy. I don't want to underplay the importance of the herpes zoster reactivation. This is a genuine adverse event risk profile of this drug directly associated with the mechanism of action. But the experience in the phase three trials so far is that this is a manageable problem. The only other adverse events that were of interest were upper respiratory infections and what is called by the classification system nasopharyngitis, you and I might call it the common cold, and that happened in about 15% of patients on anaphrolamab and about 10% of patients on placebo. Did you identify any patterns among the adverse events, such as among a particular demographic group or a specific organ system that was affected more frequently than others? So we actually looked at the AE profile and SAE profile across the subgroups of demographics, the gender, race, region, and interferon high, and all of those. And across all of the subgroups, though some have very small sample size, we saw a pretty uniform safety profile. The main thing that we studied there was herpes zoster for the reasons that I've mentioned earlier. And that was studied very carefully in terms of background disease activity, corticosteroid dosage, interferon gene signature status, age, race, and region of the world. And interestingly enough, there were no meaningful differences across those readouts in terms of risk factors for herpes zoster reactivation. Herpes zoster reactivation was slightly more common in patients whose background therapy included an immunosuppression compared to patients whose background therapy did not include an immunosuppression. Uh, but there were no other meaningful differences in the groups. And other adverse events were similar. There was no particular pattern which emerged. Is it possible for physicians to mitigate any of these potential adverse events among their patients who might be receiving anaphrolamab? So a question that often arises is what should we do in caring for our patients? If this treatment is approved, 
we find a patient that we want to treat with this drug, what risk mitigation should we take? Well, I think the first thing to say is that general risk mitigation is the most important thing. Patients should generally be vaccinated against recurrent diseases such as influenza and pneumonia. That's standard practice in our clinic for all the patients that we immunosuppress. Patients should be screened for chronic infections like TB, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, just as was done in screening for this trial and just as is done in routine practice for other immunosuppression. Patients should moderate, reduce, and hopefully stop their corticosteroid therapy, especially if their lupus comes under good control, because just about every study shows that's the highest risk factor for infection in patients with rheumatic disease. And our patients should take usual precautions to reduce their risk of infection. So those are by far the most important things for mitigating infection risk in immunosuppressed patients. I don't think we have any evidence that any different mitigation should apply in the context of this drug and this disease. But the question does arise about vaccination for herpes zoster. The first thing to say is that there are no data about the effectiveness or safety of a herpes zoster vaccine of any form in the setting of anaphrolimab treatment. We don't know whether anaphrolimab treatment would in some way impact on the effectiveness of the vaccine. And we don't know whether the vaccine would be effective in that setting because those studies have not been done. In the meantime, we have to make a pragmatic decision. And for patients at high risk of herpes zoster reactivation, which effectively includes all our patients that we immunosuppress, it seems to me common sense to consider shingles vaccination in that context. So, bottom line, in your opinion, Professor Moran, do the benefits of anaphrolimab outweigh the potential risks? So this is a paper about safety and the papers about efficacy have been published. So the question is, what about risk benefit? Well, we have patients who die from lupus every year, and that usually happens in the context of having no more treatment to offer them. So a new treatment against a validated target in lupus is desperately needed. Rheumatologists, we often joke, we immunosuppress people for a living. It's what we do. So we are very familiar with managing the risks of treatments which impact upon the immune system. So we have a drug with uh, demonstrated efficacy and a drug that has a manageable risk profile, which is so far looks largely predictable based on the mechanism of action. So to me, this adds up to a favorable risk benefit profile for this compound. Thank you both. This has been a very informative and helpful discussion. And I want to congratulate you and your colleagues for completing this very important analysis of a potential new treatment for lupus. We have been speaking with Professor Eric Morand, head of the School of Clinical Sciences and Director of Rheumatology at Monash Health and founder of the Monash Lupus Clinic in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Raj Tamala, Executive Medical Director at AstraZeneca. They were speaking about their article, Safety Profile of Anaphrolabab in Patients with SLE, an Integrated Analysis of Phase 2 and Phase 3 Trials. The article is available for free online at lupus.bmj.com. For Lupus Science and Medicine and BMJ, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America. Thank you for listening.